This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Carl Markham about his new book, A Camera Obscura. Carl is a Chicano poet from Tucson, Arizona. He is the author of the collection Q Lazarus, and his poems have appeared in the anthologies The Wind Shifts, New Latino Poetry, and Latinx Rising, an anthology of Latinx science fiction and fantasy. Carl has been awarded fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Illinois Arts Council, and the Taos Writers Conference. He has also served as a Kento Mundo Fellow from 2011 to 2015. Hi, Carl. Thank you for being on the podcast. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm very excited to get a chance to talk with you. So to kick things off, I would love to know a bit about how you first connected with poetry, both as a reader and a writer. Uh, sure. I mean, one of the, one of the stories I go back to is, uh, that I started writing poetry for the same reasons that many young men begin to write poetry. And that is to woo women. (laughs) Uh, uh, not kidding about that. Uh, I thought that, you know, uh, writing a poem for a girl would be cool. Uh, and then I found out that it was a little more difficult to write a good one. And this was in college, so I wound up taking my my first creative writing class with Allison Deming at the University of Arizona. And I did not do well in that creative writing class, mostly because I couldn't figure out poetry. I was, you know, a smart kid, so that bothered me. And uh, I walked away from that class still wanting to figure out what it is I wasn't able to grasp about about taking what I thought was the the idea of the lyric impulse. Uh, I think a lot of us who grew up in the 80s made mixtapes and sequencing those songs on a mixtape was about the the end of my ken when it came to writing poetry. So uh, what I began to do is uh, I took Allison's advice and I started reading. I started reading a lot of poetry. I uh, didn't know that poetry was a kind of viable pathway to anything really at the time, uh, especially being a, a mixed race kid growing up in Tucson, uh, identifying way more as, uh, as a Chicano, as a Mexican American than I felt, uh, that I identified as, uh, as a gringo. So, uh, I didn't know that, um, Mexicans other than Octavio Paz wrote poetry. Uh, and so I was very surprised one day when I was at the, uh, big used bookstore in Tucson called Bookman's. Uh, I found a book in the poetry section by a name I recognized 
uh, as Latina. And it was uh, Lorna de Cervantes' first book, Implumada. And it was $7, and I had $4 in my pocket. And I'll, ad- I'll admit this now, and I will pay them later, but uh, I slipped that book in- into the curve of my back and walked out. Uh, many years later, I had the opportunity to tell Lorna D. this story uh, when I introduced her at a reading at DePaul University. But that was the first time that I saw a writer whose worldview reflected my own. Uh, and from her work, I went on to to read a lot of the other Latino poets that were writing at the time, especially Gary Soto, uh, Benjamin O'Leary Sines. Obviously, that was kind of my introduction to poetry as being a kind of viable thing. Uh, and then I began to study it more carefully in college, write it, be encouraged by the kinds of feedback I received from my professors. Uh, and thought that, hey, maybe this is something I could do. So that's how I kind of got my start. Yeah, it just reminds me of this whole conversation that's ongoing about how important representation is and how being able to connect with the stories that we're reading and that we're sharing and um, how making sure there's a diversity of voices out there for, for people to connect with. Absolutely. I, I think it's an, it's important to see yourself reflected out there in the world in ways in which that are, are coming to pass now. But, you know, when I was growing up, one of the things I loved was science fiction. And even in science fiction, I didn't see myself reflected so much unless you count uh, Han Solo as a Latino. <laughs> yeah. So as you started to explore and find your own voice in poetry, how did you come to publishing? Uh, By accident, I suppose. Mm. Uh, When I was in graduate school, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting Luis Alberto Orea. uh, And he and I are kind of mirror images of what it means to be a mixed race kid. He has a Mexican father and an Anglo mother. I have an Anglo father and a Mexican mother. Uh, and so we kind of bonded over uh, that kind of cultural navigation that I think a lot of mixed race kids wind up having to make. He was already kind of starting to be a big thing at the time. Uh, his nonfiction collection, Nobody's Son, had just been released by the University of Arizona Press. And I gave him a copy of uh, my graduate thesis. And I said, you know, I'd really love your feedback. Uh, well, his feedback was to send it to the University of Arizona Press, which I thought was amazing and a blessing. And, you know, when you're a young writer, you you don't think that opportunities like this are going to happen to you. And that's how my first book came about. Uh, I didn't really publish very many of those poems in magazines. And it kind of went, you know, directly to press. And it came out in 2001. So... I'm, I've gone 20 years between books, and I think that that has been a really useful lesson in how the publishing world works and how the publishing world has changed over the last 20 years and the kinds of uh, things that go on behind the scenes when a, when a book is being made. Wow. So it's been 20 years since your last book. So can you maybe talk a bit about your journey from your last book to your current one and how you came to a camera obscura? Sure. It doesn't seem like 20 years. That, that much I can say is true. Mostly 
the things that have happened to me in the last 20 years have been the other aspects of life that we might deem more important. Work, family, children, and finding time for poetry uh, with a couple of kids running around became something that I, I found to be uh, more challenging. Uh, that's why I've, I've, gi- I've been given to writing, writing sonnets uh, as of late because I figure I have enough time for 14 lines. Uh, but yeah, I, I started teaching and um, no one told me, or at least they don't prepare you in graduate school for the kinds of things that you need to do while you teach and try to write at the same time. Uh, I grew up in a very working class environment. And so I always brought that kind of working class work ethic with me and that whatever I was doing, I wanted to be the best at what that was. And so when I started teaching, I probably gave more of myself to teaching than I could to poetry. And, you know, one thing suffers when you concentrate on something else. And so I did that for a long while. Uh, We were in Chicago and I taught uh, as a visiting assistant professor at DePaul University while my wife was finishing her PhD at the University of Chicago. And uh, that I thought was a, a great way to, you know, by the time that she needed to pursue her studies, while at the same time getting experience uh, as, a, as a teacher. But academia doesn't really care how good a teacher you are, I found out, that uh, they're more interested in how many publications you have. And so I wound up actually leaving academia. The last five years I've been working uh, on the environmental side of the oil, uh, of the oil and gas industry in Pennsylvania. Uh, I found that the kinds of skills one has as a writer, that of communication and clarity, is something that uh, the private sector is willing to pay for and and pay more handsomely than teaching. So I've been doing that. Uh, I've recently returned as a favor to a friend who uh, needed to take a medical leave to the classroom right in the middle of a pandemic on Zoom. So it's uh, it's been an interesting return to academia, but one that I uh, definitely felt like I've missed. I missed the, that kind of connection to, to students and uh, to helping them explore their interests. And how did I get to a camera obscura? Well, a camera obscura was kind of always in process uh, since Q Lazarus. There are maybe three or four poems in here that uh, do stretch back that far, uh, that to that twenty years. But for the most part, it was a project that kept becoming and re-becoming, uh, being revised and refined and reworked. And when I was, uh, when this book came, <clears throat> came about, uh, it was because of uh, another friend of mine, another writer, Francisco Aragon, who has done more for Latino literature than a lot of people. He's a great behind-the-scenes organizer and promoter and uh, general mover of poets. He, he herds cats, basically. <laughs> and uh, he asked me if, if this manuscript was still available. And I said, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty much on a flash drive in a drawer. Because I had, I, I felt like I had walked away from the kind of publishing life that that poetry uh, demands of you, I suppose. Even though it really doesn't. Emily always just put her poems in a drawer herself. But uh, he asked for the manuscript. I took another look at it. I said, sure. Uh, so I, I sent it uh, to the Letras Latinas Prize, 
which is the prize for a second or third book from a Latino poet that uh, the Le- the Letras Latinas Institute at uh, the University of Notre Dame sponsors in part in partnership with Red Hand Press, from whom this particular volume will be coming out. Uh, and so I sent it to him. Uh, and in truth, I forgot that I had, you know, gone back through and sent it over. Uh, until Carmen Jimenez Smith, who was the judge for this prize, gave me a call, and uh, I thought it was <laughs> I had forgotten she was a judge. I thought she was just calling me because I had met Carmen a couple of times at Canto Mundo. I thought it had something to do with uh, with being one of the regional co-chairs at Canto Mundo, but uh, it was to inform me that she had selected my my volume uh, for this particular prize. So that's what uh, that's what happened in the last uh, twenty years. It, it blinks if you are not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's such a cool story of how it came about. It's it's kind of a surprise, <laughs> kind of both times with your with your books. Yeah, absolutely. I, poetry is valuable to me personally, but sometimes I feel like it's not the kind of calling that I have when I am uh, a father or a teacher that it is, it's a luxury to me sometimes as far as time goes to be able to vote it to writing. Uh, and so when I do, uh, I tend to, as, as I mentioned earlier, write sonnets. Yeah. Speaking about your book, right off the bat, one of the things I love when I opened your book was that the first poem was written entirely in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved that because from my point of view, if you don't understand Spanish, then it's an obscurity, which can be beautiful the way a mystery is beautiful. But if you do understand understand Spanish, then it feels like an invitation or a welcoming. So I would love if you talked a bit about um, why you chose that poem as your opening for the book and how the book came together in general. Uh, sure. Uh, this particular poem that you're, you're, you're thinking of is uh, Cartografía de Noche, uh, a night cartograph. Um, one of the things that this particular book is interested in is creating exterior landscapes made into interior landscapes, so to speak. Uh, and this particular poem I wanted as the first poem in the book to be both that thing that uh, is strange to a reader who doesn't understand Spanish and an invitation to a reader who does. Um, it's also one of the more experimentally lined poems in the book. And I wanted that to have a sense of a, of looking out over over a horizon, mm. uh, and so I wanted it to be both an invitation and a kind of primer to what somebody might expect if they would continue reading. Yeah, I think that's great. So I'm always fascinated by the ways in which poets approach the use of language in their work, and. You have a mixture of both Spanish and English, and every poet is so vastly different. So what is your personal approach to working with language when you're approaching lines and stanzas and putting things together? Um, I, I feel like I work very much with the idea of breath. Uh, Leung Lee has famously insisted on this idea of breath as a right the the life-giving thing right you bring it into yourself to give life and you exhale it uh to give life to language just to speak we need to breathe and the sonic quality of the language is something that's also quite important to me 
and the complexity with which that language renders itself. So I, uh, if I were to say who my influences are, I would have to say that uh, Larry Levis, Mark Doty, Lee Young Lee, voices like Marie Howe and Elizabeth Bishop are poets who have always brought my attention or wrought my attention with their language. And so I use this idea of breath initially to form the line and to hear the music. Uh, hearing the music of a poem, I think, is is one of the key things to, to bringing a, a, a poem to fruition. And sometimes that music is in Spanish, and sometimes that music is in English, and sometimes uh, it is in both. That's lovely. So a number of your poems in this book involve somebody looking up at the sky, staring up at the stars, or deal with the stars themselves. But at the same time, it's also very grounded in the human experience here on Earth. And I would love if you talked a bit about those themes and kind of images that you deal with in the work in this book. Sure. Uh, one of the things that was important to me in this book uh, is the 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 astronomical, I should say, aspect of kind of, of a lot of some of the subject matter and how that subject matter, using this astronomical language from time to time, is just about kind of acknowledging the beauty of the language of science uh, in a lot of ways for me. And the backdrop of the night sky is something that I think is the, that moment of the universal. We've all looked up into the stars and been overcome by their beauty, uh, reduced to, uh, how should I say this? Felt reduced to our, our own singleness by looking at the stars, right? Our own moment, our own smallness. Uh, and I think that that is a kind of universal aspect that we all have looking at the stars. And how the idea of looking at a thing is a way of understanding a thing. Uh, and so we try to, to take that understanding and, and use that gaze, so to speak, as, uh, as I look at other aspects of life, you know, walking down the street, driving down a freeway, you know, spending time with my kids. And how those same kinds of moments of attempting to understand something by its image, and hence the title of Camera Obscura, is part and parcel of what this book is trying to accomplish. And when I say a Camera Obscura, uh, I do mean right that the dark room, uh, the dark room of the imagination, so to speak. Even the eye itself uh, functions as a camera. Right, the the image that we see of the world uh, comes in through light and is inverted onto our retina, and our brain somehow takes those signals and reinverts them into the world that we see and understand. But I'm I'm also keenly aware that that we can be tricked. We can we can see things in error. We can see things askance. We can uh, have what's the word I'm looking for here. Uh, what is it when the oh a mirage right the kind of unreality that uh, that the gaze can can be tricked by and so i think that that happens in this book as well right is to understand that aspect that the the image as much as it is my focus in this book is also rendered through language so there's there's almost this filter upon a filter that that happens to get these poems on a page yeah i think that's beautiful 
I love the juxtaposition of science and poetry together, um, especially since a lot of people kind of see science and the arts as separate things, opposites mm -hmm. of each other. <laughs> but in a way, like science and poetry are very connected from the point of view of they both seem incomprehensible <laughs> to people who are not accustomed to dealing with the very specific languaging of each one. And I was wondering, what, what are your thoughts on this supposed division between science and poetry and how can they benefit and work together and feed off each other? I, I think that there's a lot going on, uh, especially, especially with poetry in conjunction to its, its focus on science. My friend Rosebud Benoni's book, If This is the Age We in Discovery, which just came out in March, uh, also tackles a lot of scientific aspects of the world in conjunction with uh, her poetry, which I, I find extraordinarily challenging from a reader's perspective and in, a, in, a, in an inviting way, in a useful way, in a way that makes you work for it. Uh, Rosebud is great because she challenges the rest of us to get better. But here is the thing between science and poetry for me, right? I, I saw a meme not long ago that said, science is not the truth. Science is the search for the truth. So when science changes its mind, it didn't lie to you. It just knew more. And I think that that's very much true with poetry. Uh, although poetry does very often and actively lie to you, but in service of the truth. And I think that there's that connection between poetry and science, that they are both searching for some kind of truth, sometimes with a capital T, uh, sometimes with a lowercase t. One of the other aspects I, I found important and significant in constructing this book are ideas of faith. I grew up very Mexican Catholic. Uh, and so I think aspects of that kind of cultural idea of faith, uh, artifacts of it, have definitely moved into uh, this particular collection as well. And very often people ask scientists, you know, how, how can you be a scientist and a man of faith? Well, the same way that you can be a poet and uh, an astronomer. You know, when I was at, when I was at Stanford, we were at a, a party that graduate students were having. And I was talking to someone and he was telling me, you know, that he's a particle physicist. And I said, oh, that's great. I, 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 uh, I think that's great. And he asked me what I did. I said, well, I'm a poet. He said, oh, poetry is wonderful. I, I like poetry as, uh, you know, that's something I like to have an interest in in my spare time. And I said, well, yeah, particle physics is something that I, I like to have an interest in my spare time as well. So there is a relationship between poetry uh, and science. And I think uh, poets like Alison Deming really bring forward a lot of the connections between our lives and the scientific world and how it's in a lot of ways, it's up to the arts to provide the sciences, the context of the human space in which the sciences try to make a difference. Uh, poetry shows us how that difference can be made. Yeah. Yeah. Translating. Uh, my brain is trying but like um, the the translating the human experience so that it's, it's like god it's like I, I feel like sometimes as a scientist uh, one could easily get wrapped up in the data points and remembering the human experience that it's connected to is so important 
Um, yeah. So would you like to read one of the poems from your collection? Sure. Did you have a, a particular one in mind that you wanted to hear? I am open to whatever sparks for you at this moment. Uh, okay. Hmm. Oh, there it is. Uh, there's a piece in the book about halfway through that is called a science fiction. Uh, it was first published in uh, Latinx Rising, which is a anthology of Latino and Latina speculative fiction. Uh, I remember seeing the the advert for that and uh, sending in some poems saying, "Oh, here's some poems because poets write this kind of stuff too, speculative." Uh, in fact, um, I I would venture to say that all poetry is speculative. But this is a piece called a science fiction, and it is presupposed on a few theories by by Stephen Hawking's and other physicists of what would happen to a human when they if they were to uh, fall into a black hole or singularity. Uh, it takes lots of tropes from science fiction. And it mixes tenses. Uh, one of the things that they they think happens is that time collapses. And so it, the, the poem itself is m- variable in the way it uses its tenses to kind of signify uh, the, way, uh, the way time might collapse. So here's the piece. A science fiction. When the sun rose, it was smaller than in my dream. I had been asleep for what felt a long time and woke confused and claustrophobic. The texture of sky still magnetized me, a desert bright day. But the light is streaked like too much everything pulled to the edges of a window and storm. What little of me exists as aperture. I wanted so little for my birthday, a moment's peace on a hill. And where did that get me? into the stars themselves, to hitch myself to a salvage run, 13 years round trip, a distress signal, a freighter the company had written off the summer I learned to kiss a girl until she shook with desire. When the engines fired, no one thought to think could even know this uncharted singularity. At night on earth, I am all of Orion. At night, on earth, I fell tangential into a puddle of cold rain and rippled the muddy reflection of light, blurred the confusion of new Chicago into circuit and solder. This is what I can expect. Gravity, density, volume dissipating. I am all at once. I studied all night for an exam I wouldn't pass, slept through a snowfall that piled itself upon itself. Death isn't the door you would expect, isn't a carriage kindly stopping. I celebrated my birthday on a science rig, surveying a binary system. The galley scrounged up cake and candle. I wished myself into consciousness. Proximity alarms should be blaring, but sound is stretched to color, color stitched to light, light solidifying to absence, absent the sequence. That is such a beautiful poem. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. I'm 
Thinking about the fact that you said uh, poetry is inherently speculative, because I've actually just been listening to this podcast, Writing Excuses, where they've had an, an eight-episode masterclass on poetry. And Amal El-Matar, who has been leading the class, uh, her, the final episode disca- discusses poetry in the fantastic, and how... Um, she talks too about how poetry by its nature is fantastical, is dealing with imagery that, that is inherently so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's inherently privatized. It's lyr. It's what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, it's made into lyric, right? It is again, taking, taking the idea of experience or observation and trying to render it in the most, specific and musical way into language, right? Is is again that act of translation that a poet makes. And that act itself is a speculation on the idea of experience in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um one of the questions I feel like I gotta talk about is um the fact that you are clearly a Star Trek fan, because that comes out in your poetry. Um and media has a, such an impact on us and can sometimes even shape our work. So I wanted to ask what, what draws you to Star Trek and why you, whether you feel it's like how much has influenced your work? Uh, as far as, as far as the influence in my work, uh, you know, Star Trek gives us this kind of egalitarian utopia, this right, this meritocracy that happens out there. Uh, even in the 1960s, uh, Star Trek was viewed as, you know, it, with its very diverse cast, right? This, this kind of, uh, idealization of what humanity can or should be. And I think Roddenberry was, was tapped into something I think that's important to both scientists and the humanities when he, he shows us this, this kind of society. And it's not without its problems for anyone who's a Star Trek fan and has watched any of the series, or uh, I'm a particular fan recently of the J.J. The Abrams reboots. Uh, I think that what they did with casting in that particular uh, series of movies uh, was great. I, I, I love the way those characters have been re-rendered. And again, again, this kind of redoing, I think, is, is really interesting and significant. Although Rosebud Benoni might, might uh, mention that as proof that we are indeed living in a simulation. <laughs> but this, the, the ideas that Star Trek puts forward is is based upon a a post-scarcity world and a post-scarcity economy, which we're not, I think, wise enough to understand that we're so near now. Mm. And I think that that is part of what has always drawn me to it. Uh, The other things that that drew me to it are these ideas of representation, although I didn't see a a Latino Starfleet officer until, uh, I guess, I guess Chakotay. Although he's playing Native American there, you know, Balana Torres, perhaps Balana Torres is a Latina Starfleet officer. Uh, but the idea of exploration, I think, is something significant that I think taps into a lot of uh, the ideas of attraction to Star Trek for a lot of people, right? To go out there to see these brave new worlds. Uh, and that's, that's the name of the new Star Trek series, apparently, that's coming out. And there's, there's been a revitalization. Again, it's something that that has been able to span the decades as far as its relevance and its interest. It's not just a money-making machine for 
the studios, although it is that, uh, but it's also a, a cultural icon for the United States and I think for the world. Uh, it's something to aspire toward. Yeah, I totally agree. And as far as its intersection with uh, my poetry, uh, when I was writing the the sequence of haikus in this book called Sci-Fi Ku, uh, kind of making a portmanteau of that, I realized that Beam Me Up Scotty was five syllables. I said, all right. Uh, and then I quickly realized that Live Long and Prosper, also five syllables. So I had to find that, that seven uh Seven syllable line, uh, which is "Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor." <laughs> so, I, I stitched that little haiku out of these kinds of famous uh, Star Trek phrases because I think that that's something that's significant to us when we think about space exploration. I remember having uh, my vehicle serviced several years ago now, but you know, you, you know, when you're stuck at the dealer, you're just watching the whatever's on their TV. Uh, it happened to be the retiring of the last space shuttle, I believe that that was uh, either Atlantis or Discovery. And, you know, they flew it across the country to be put in a museum. And the person that was receiving it was Leonard Nimoy. This is, you know, probably two years before he passed on. Uh, and when I saw that, I was like, wow, you know, here is this, this connection between this imagined world and the real world. And the kind of value we place on both these things, you know, pre-pandemic, there were huge crowds there to receive the space shuttle. Nimoy gave a speech about our, the ideas of, of discovery and exploration and things that Star Trek has brought into our culture and fused with our imagination uh, and our desire to explore. Sometimes I think that it might be a little dangerous uh, not just in aspects of, you know, physical danger, but uh, we need to get past a colonial impulse if we want to go out into space. Uh, otherwise, we're going to do it wrong. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so would you like to share a little bit of what you're working on now? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be poetry if, if there's some other thing that you're working on as well. No, you know, I'm I'm working on poem to poem. Canto Mundo, which is the Latino Poets Collective uh, akin to Cave Canem or uh, Kundiman, is the yearly retreat and new, new fellows are selected and you're eligible for five years. And I encourage all of the young Latino poets out there to apply to Canto Mundo because what it does is it connects you to a community of Latino poets who uh, share your experience and at the same time have such varied and interesting experiences themselves. Uh, Anyway, out of that grew an online challenge uh, of 30 for 30 in May, which uh, was hosted last year by the poet Juan Morales, who is an, out in California. Uh, and Juan organized it all, and a bunch of us took part. And it was easy last May because we were you know, at the very beginning of this pandemic, still in the moment of lockdown. There was still this kind of, uh, at least for me, this romanticized idea of how much writing I could get done. The good thing is that I did get 35 pages of new poems out. And this year we started it again, and uh, I've fallen behind already. <laughs> Fallen behind already, but I, I, it is my intention to catch up. So, yeah, so I'm working piece to piece, poem to poem, and trying to find my moments of inspiration where I can. Wonderful. 
So to wrap up, would you like to share something that you're reading or some form of media that you're loving or finding inspiring right now? Sure. Uh, As far as what I'm reading, I'm making my way for the second time through Rosebud Benoni's new collection, uh, If This Is the Age We End Discovery. Uh, Well worth your time. Uh, As far as other media goes, um, you know, they say that you're your musical taste gets stuck when you're 14. <laughs> uh, and so if that's true, then I should only be listening to Depeche Mode and New Order. But lately, uh, I have uh, found myself listening to that music of my youth. Uh, returning to the music of our youth is especially comforting, I think, right now. It gives us a sense that... The, that I think probably more is possible, right? And it's, it's, it's good to feel young and music has a way of making us do that. Um, I consume far too much television, uh, a habit I've developed uh, specifically during the pandemic. Uh, and I uh, really loved Rutherford Falls, the new sitcom out on Peacock uh, at Helms. Uh, Mark Sharon is, I believe, one of the showrunners there. So it's funny. Well worth your time to, if you want to feel like like laughing, it's a good piece to do. And it's also got a, a, a serious kind of social consciousness and commentary about it as well. And as far as sci-fi goes, watch uh, the most recent series of The Expanse. I think that that is probably the most realistic vision of what might happen to us when we go out into the, the solar system. I've heard a lot of recommendations for The Expanse, and it's one I haven't gotten to yet, so I need to jump on that. It's on Amazon. Well worth your time. I think there's four seasons of it now, so it'll keep you busy for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, great. Is there some place where people can find you online and connect with you? Uh, I don't have a website. I've never thought that having a website would make anyone come and find me (laughs) you can find me on twitter at carlos gringo 13 great wonderful thank you so much for this conversation no it's been my pleasure thank you for having me and uh and then promoting the work of of poets and especially the our new work as it comes out it's my pleasure and your book is available for pre-order right now or it's available for pre-order uh red hen press and it officially comes out And it officially is dropped on June the 29th. Excellent. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to getting myself a physical copy. So thank you so much, everybody for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.